Morning. Our scripture reading this morning is, is from Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, we'll be reading verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Thank you, Steve. So we are a society that is perpetually unsatisfied. We are a society that goes through life and discards life, discards the things of life with the same frequency that you might go through the kind of merchandise you would buy at the dollar store. We're perpetually unsatisfied. On average, we move out of our house into another house at least 12 times in our life. On average, we change our job every five years. And on average, we change our relationship every four years. So we get sick of our honey one year before we get sick of our job. We go through life perpetually unsatisfied. We go through life discarding the things of life with the same frequency that we would discard the kind of merchandise you would buy at the dollar store. Today we are finishing up our series on the book of Exodus. Actually, we're not quite finishing it up. Craig is going to finish it up next week for us. He's going to preach from the book of Hebrews. Am I right about this? Okay. Uh, He's going to preach from the book of Hebrews and going to show more specifically how the book of Hebrews in the New Testament uses the book of Exodus, how the book of Exodus then points to, finds its fulfillment in Christ, and how that is shown to us in the book of Hebrews. So he's going to close that out for us next week. By the way, I I do want to just take a moment and thank Frank DeLala, that guy right there, the wonderful, uh, good-looking bald guy in the back there, for filling in for me last Sunday. Um... Uh, so my wife had a baby, just, yep, thank you very much, and um, uh, Frank was sort of on call for that weekend, like, you know, you take call, like doctors take call, and Craig takes call, and, and, but th- that weekend we needed Frank to take call, and he was on call, and sure enough, it happened on Friday, uh, so thank you, Frank, for stepping up, we are so uh, blessed by you, and I appreciate you so much. Um, actually, Frank, this is the, I think this, this might even, I don't know if he did it for Caleb or not. I know he did for when, when Grace was born seven years ago, Frank was on call and stepped in. So he's just like, if I have a baby, Frank's supposed to preach. That's just kind of the way it works. So Frank, thank you very much. Very much blessed by you. Uh, but we're finishing up the series on the book of Exodus. And as we've seen, the book of Exodus, well, the title of this series that I gave this series is Exodus. Um, which I keep pointing out is really not all that clever. Um, I'm doing a series on Exodus, and the series title is Exodus. Really clever. Usually when I 
do a series, for example, when we did a series on the book of 1 Peter, the series title wasn't 1 Peter, the series title was Strange. And the reason was because I wanted to find a, a phrase or a word that would sort of capture the essence of what I saw emerging out of that text. And, and in 1 Peter, a lot of it is about how living as a Christian is somewhat strange. There's a strangeness to living. So, Chris, so we called it strange. I remember I did a series on the book of Ephesians, and I didn't call the series Ephesians. I called it reconciliation because I think that that word sort of captures what the book is about. But with the book of Exodus, I just called it Exodus. And, of course, the reason is because the title of the book does describe what the book is about. It is about an exodus. It is about deliverance. And one of the central themes that emerges from this, what God wanted the people of Israel to understand when the events were unfolding, as they unfolded in the, in the book of Exodus, as they're recorded in the book of Exodus, what God wanted the people of Israel to know and he, what he wants for us to know as people who read the book of Exodus is that this is who God is. That he wants us to realize that when we think of God, what do we think of? What is the first thing that we think of? And what he wants us to think of is that he is a God of deliverance. That is his core characteristic. And so we've, we've, we've seen this, that, that he comes and he delivers the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And, and then as we come to the, the end of the book of Exodus, right, he brings them out, he explains to them uh, what their relationship is going to be like. So they've, they've come out of slavery, and now they're entering into this relationship with him, and there's this uh, covenant that is made, and just sort of a, it's kind of a define the relationship kind of, kind of talk is really what it is. And so, but then, then as the story goes, we, we, we realize as we come to the book of, the end of the book of Exodus, that this is just part of a bigger story. That the story of Exodus is part of a much larger story. And the way we, we pick this up here, and it kind of drops this sort of clue for us, is in the very last verse, actually in the last couple of verses, uh, it, it uses the, this phrase, in all the travels of the Israelites, verse 36, in all the travels of the Israelites. And then <clears throat> down in verse 38, the last phrase of this whole story is, during all their travels, right? It's sort of a Hebrew way of saying to be continued. It's a way of saying this is a part of a much bigger and larger story that stretches from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. Now, the question for us <clears throat> is this, right? What, what, what does this mean for us? Uh, what does this story mean for us? And this is really the question which we're seeking to address just about every week is how does this story that unfolds in the book of Exodus, how do we appropriate this into our own lives? And what we're discovering time and time again is that when we read the book of Exodus, it is an invitation for us to make this story our story. It's an invitation to make this story our story. You see, we all have a story. We all have stories. We are, in many respects, all actors living out a script of a story, and we are constantly being invited to live in and act out a particular story. When you turn on the television and there's a commercial, that commercial is inviting you into a story. Right? Why is it that whenever something is advertised, whether it's a handbag or a shirt or a car, there's always some, well, there's somebody really attractive 
that is either carrying the handbag or wearing the shirt or driving the car. And, and the reason why advertisers do that is that picking somebody like that, it, it, within that image, it communicates an entire story. Because in our culture, we have this sort of sense that, well, you know, if you're good looking, then there's a lot of things that come with that. Like the story of your life is going to go a certain way. If you're good looking, then you're going to become successful. If you're good looking, you're going to make a lot of money. Um, and, and apparently, uh, I, heard, I heard somebody tell me that, that for men, if you are between six foot and six foot two with dark hair, that's like, that's A, that's a plus, man. That's like recipe for success, something like a huge percentage of CEOs in America are men between, you know, six foot and six foot two and dark hair. And I remember the person who was telling me this was like six foot one with dark hair. I'm like, well, good for you. I'm really happy about that for you. Right? But, but there's this idea that if you are attractive, right, so if you're, if you're carrying the handbag, the coach handbag, or, or you're wearing the shirt from the Gap or whatever, um, and, and you see a picture of that person, what, what's going on, even subconsciously, you don't realize what's going on here, is it's telling you if you buy our product, then this story can become your story. And this happens almost subconsciously, almost precognitively. We, we just, you don't even think about it, but it's inviting you into this story. This story will become your story. And so when we read the scriptures, we are, we are trying to counterform all of these invitations that are coming at us every day. The book of Exodus is inviting us to say, no, 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 this is my story. The story of the people of God, the story of the people of Israel, and I make this <clears throat> my own story. Now, as we come to this particular passage, I think we can take this invitation and we can see it's more specific, right? What does it mean to make the story our story? I think there's something more specific we can draw out of this. And really what this is, is it is an invitation to follow God. What we find in this passage is an invitation to follow God. The people of Israel, right, if you make this your story, then it becomes an invitation to follow God. The people of Israel, they have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They've come out, and now what? Right? Is it like, thanks, God. You know, I'm, I'm off. I'm going to go this way. Yeah, really appreciate your help. I'm going to go this way. Right? That's, that's the question here. And, and what this is suggesting is, no, 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 listen, there's an invitation. You've been delivered. Now there's this invitation to follow God. That's what this whole passage is about. It's about the Israelites following God, being invited to follow God in all their travels. I want to unpack just briefly three things that it means to follow God that I think emerged from this passage. First of all, what it means to follow God is this. It means to give up on your own direction for your life. Give up on your own direction. For your life. Verse 36, in all their travels, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. So in everything that they did, in everywhere that they went, it was we are going to follow where God goes. What it means to follow God is, is, is to surrender your own direction, to give up your own direction, that there is this fundamental orientation that changes when we follow God. And so we're no longer saying, what do I want out of life? Right, that's, that's the question that I think certainly in our modern American culture, that's the question we constantly ask ourselves. What do I want out of life? 
And what this is inviting you to do is say, no, that's not the fundamental orientation. It's not what do I want out of life. It's what does God want out of my life. Jesus, in his typically uh, robust and exaggerated hyperbole, he likes to put it this way. He says, whoever comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Right? Jesus doesn't beat around the bush here. Right? There's, there's no subtlety here. This is his classic Jewish hyperbole. He's not really saying hate your family. But what he's saying is, listen, what is going to orient your life, your direction in life can be nothing other than me. That's what it means to follow me. I think it means, and it means really meaning that. Okay? It means really meaning I am going to follow what God wants me to do. Yeah, I think what we can do if you're religious of any kind of persuasion, is you'll spiritualize your own desires. We do this. We spiritualize our own desires, and we convince ourselves that what we want is what God wants for us. Right? So I'll give you an example. We used to, when I was in seminary, and I was living in a dorm. It was an all-male dorm. Our, our dorm was a male man dorm. And, uh, and there was sort of this joke amongst the guys in the dorm, and it was, it was that, you know, like, well, you know, where do you feel like God's leading you? What do you think God's calling you to? And we'd all be like, oh, I feel like God's calling me to, to minister to young, attractive, single women. You know. I just feel like God's really placed that on my heart. You know. I just want to be obedient. To follow. You know, and, and it's this joke, and it was calling out the fact that how often do we really just follow our own desires and then convince ourselves, oh, God's leading me to do this. And what we're talking about here is a genuine surrender, a genuine giving up. Say, God, I give up all of my desires for you. You know, another way of putting this is when we talk about what it means for God to rescue us, for us to be delivered, is that that kind of deliverance is a lot more like the kind of deliverance that you might experience if somebody offered you a really great job when you were wandering aimlessly. That's the kind of deliverance. We tend to think of the kind of deliverance that God gives us as being more like the kind of deliverance that a firefighter gives you, right? Let's think about that kind of deliverance. So let, let us just uh, assume uh, that you set your apartment on fire. Maybe you, were, you ordered some pizza and you were reading a book and you didn't want to eat the pizza, so you decided, well, I'm going to keep it warm in the oven. So you, you just put it in the oven to keep it warm, but you, you forgot to take it out of the box, out of the cardboard box, and, and you turned up the heat a little bit too high. So let's just imagine then that the pizza box catches on fire, right? I don't know anybody who would, okay, I did that when I was in my 20s. I was warming up my pizza. The pizza box explodes into flame. There is just smoke billowing out of the oven. Fortunately, I was able to deal with it without calling the fire department. But let us imagine here for a moment that that doesn't work. Your house catches on fire. You're up in your second-story window and, you know, help, 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 I'm trapped. And the firefighter, some strapping, fi- you know, young firefighter comes and climbs up the ladder and rescues you out of the window. And you've been delivered. You've been rescued, right? So what, what happens when the firefighter delivers you? Well, they bring you down, maybe check to see if you're okay. Maybe you need to go to the hospital. Maybe they just check to see how you're breathing, whatever. And then, and then it's like, okay. Then you can go and... Do whatever you want. And some of us think that that's what it's like when God delivers us. Oh, God, I need you. I'm struggling. I need your help. Rescue me. Rescue me. And then he rescues you through whatever trial you're in. It's like, thanks, God. Now I can go do what I want. 
And instead, when God delivers us, it's more like when somebody offers you a really great job after you've just been sitting at home with your parents, sleeping until noon, uh, eating potato chips and playing video games, and, and reality is you're, you're starting to not be happy, right? You maybe slip into depression. You don't know what to do with your life, starting to feel terrible about yourself as you just keep munching away and keep playing your video game. You're just kind of aimless, and you don't know what to do, and then somebody offers you an amazing job, and you're delivered out of that aimlessness. You're given a purpose and a direction, that, that's actually more what it's like when God delivers us. When you're delivered by that boss who gives you that opportunity, it's not now, well, you can do whatever you want. It's almost the very opposite. It's now you, you do what your boss tells you to do, and that leads to something. That leads to a, a life and even a kind of freedom that your aimlessness didn't have. That's really more what it's like. So what does it mean to follow God? It means to give up your direction. Secondly, and closely related to this, it means to daily make the decision to follow God. We, we see this again in these first two verses, or, or verses 36 and 37. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. And so this picture of they're just waiting every day daily looking to see where God might lead them. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I think that's really important because in our society, we, we, don't, we don't tend to celebrate like the daily kind of surrender. We're into the big surrender, the big sacrifice, right? So, well, you know, if you, if you have somebody, a firefighter, who goes into a building and risks their life to rescue somebody. That's something we celebrate. And we should. We should celebrate that. We should celebrate those big one-time things. You know, somebody, you hear about some wealthy person who gives millions of dollars to some charity. and It's this big one-time sacrifice. We love to celebrate that. And those are good things. But actually, there's a sense in which there's something, in some respects, can be even more difficult. And that is a daily sacrifice. Every day, every moment, every little interaction, God is calling us to surrender our desires to His. It's those small little deaths every day, small little dying to ourself in your interactions with your spouse, in your interactions with your children, in your interactions at work. Uh, you know, my, my wife this past week has been a visual of that for me. Because every day, every moment, she is daily giving herself for our daughter, Valerie. And it's, it's not a one-time, like, oh, good, I had the baby. Look at the sacrifice. Look at the pain. You know, one-time sacrifice. No, she did that, and now she's doing this, that daily sacrifice. And that serves as a model for what it means to surrender to God. Every moment, daily moment, we are following God. You know, and another way of saying this, when we talk about, following God, is obedience to His way of life. What I mean by that is I think that we can get too caught up in this notion of, well, I'm trying to hear from God on what to do. I'm waiting to hear from God on how to handle this situation. And here's the truth, and I would say 90% of the situations you find yourself in, 
You don't need to hear a word from God. You already know what God would want you to do. There is a way of life, right? I mean, let's put it this way, sort of an obvious example. Suppose you have a friend who is a security guard at a bank, and he comes to you, and he's like, hey, listen, I just found out there's going to be an armored car coming here with $17 million. Thursday night, Friday morning, I've got the codes we can get, we could break in Friday morning. We could, we'll split the $17 million in two. Right? That's not a situation where you go, you know, let me pray about it. You know, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take that before the Lord and uh, God, what do you want me to do? It's like, no, there, there's just, there's obedience to his way of life. I think sometimes we confuse the issue. Our selfishness allows us to confuse the issue. We think, well, I'm not really sure I need to hear from God when it's obvious. If we would just be obedient to what God teaches us in scriptures, when we just be obedient to this way of life that God has called us to. So, what does it mean to follow God? It means to give up our own direction. It means to daily decide to follow. And thirdly, it's this. Thirdly, what it means to follow God is trusting. Trusting that following God really will lead to freedom. Right now, I've been saying here, I've been saying it's about giving up your desires, right? Giving up your desires. And that's true, but guess what? In the end, it actually is for your benefit. I mean, Jesus, even in the classic statement, you know, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or, a different place, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it, right? He's, he's recognizing, okay, you are after saving your life sometimes what is called Christian hedonism. This idea, I really, okay, I want to seek what's best for me. I want to seek what is going to lead to joy. But actually what that seeking is, is surrendering my desires to God and following what He wants. And so following Him is trusting, trusting that this really does lead to life. And of course, when we look at the story of the people of Israel in its broader context, we discover that as He leads them out, Where is this ultimately headed for his people? It's ultimately headed to the promised land. That's where he's leading them. And that, in the end, for us, our trust is in that, is in precisely our following God, our decision to follow him rests in this trust that he really is leading us into a life that is better for us. Now, The question becomes, quite naturally, why should we trust Him? Why should we give away our direction? Why should we surrender our direction to God? Why should we do this daily? Why should we trust that this is going to lead to life? And I would put it this way. This is what this passage points us to. We can trust that it's going to lead to life. We should follow God because of His glory. We should trust Him. We should follow Him because of His glory. This word glory emerges twice here in these final verses. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory 
of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The book of Exodus, in many respects, is about the glory of God. The last 15 chapters are about God explaining how to build this tabernacle, this tent, this place that is worthy of God's presence as a way of showing His glory. What is it that leads us to follow Him? It's His, it's his glory. Now, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Okay, what, what is glory? <laughs> what, what, what is the glory of God? What does that, what does that word mean, right? And when you think of the word glory, we think of things like honor and respect, victory. Right? Victory is, is a, bi- a big part of, of glory, right? You know, Bruce Springsteen sings about his, uh, his friend back in high school, really great baseball player. Nobody could hit his, his pitches, and, uh, and then they get out of high school, they grow up, whatever. And, and then Bruce meets him at a roadside bar, and they're chatting it up. And this friend of his, all he talks about is his glory days, right? Those glory days, those days when he was, he was all that at his school. Everybody looked at him with this respect and this honor, right, because he was victorious. That's glory. We think of it in that respect. But, but here's what we, we, I think can help us if we dig a little bit deeper into what this word means. The, the Hebrew word is kabod, uh, and it comes, the root word is kabed. And this, this Hebrew word, it's a word that actually, here's what it means. It means heavy. It means weighty. There's a passage in 1 Samuel when uh, the priest Eli is getting old. Apparently, he's put on some pounds, and it uses the word kabed to describe him being kind of heavy. It's a word that means heavy, weighty, that there's substance here. So, why would we seek after God and His glory? And here's why. Because he is the only one who can give real substance to your life. He's the only one that can give a sense of weightiness to your life. To put it a different way, if you pursue your life without God, what you will discover, the things that you will find and accumulate will be as chintzy as the merchandise you would find in a dollar store. If you don't follow God, if you don't follow in His direction, no matter where you go, folks, you're living your entire life shopping at the dollar store. It's chintzy. That's why we go through it all. We go through the job. We go through the relationship. We go through the house. It's because it's lacking this substance when it is pursued apart from God. You know, just... A few weeks ago, we had a birthday present for my son. Uh, Star Wars, you know, loves Star Wars, dressed up as Kylo Ren. Literally, literally wore the Kylo Ren outfit all day. The mask. I'm like, he's like trying to eat. I'm like, you have to take the mask off if you want to eat. Anyway, just loves Star Wars. And so we, you know, a bunch of kids came, and we we went to the dollar store, and we bought these uh, lightsabers, (laughs) And we handed the lightsabers out to the kids at the end of the party, right? For two reasons. One, we didn't want them whacking each other throughout the party. But secondly, we're like, I don't know how long these things are going to last, man. You know, little battery, like, woo, woo. I'm like, these are dollar store. It's chintzy. 
It's not going to last. And when we pursue life apart from the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the substance of God, everything that we're doing, you're just shopping in the dollar store. Why do we move 12 times in our life? Why do we go from job to job to job? Why do we go through relationship to relationship to relationship? Because the pursuit of all of those things apart from God is nothing, nothing more than just shopping at the dollar store. I love in the, the great divorce, CS, one of C.S. Lewis's great works, and he, he gives a sort of fictitious description of heaven, heavenly reality, and and you can go visit. This guy goes and visits heaven. And when he goes and he visits heaven, he discovers that when he tries to walk on the grass, the grass doesn't move. And when he tries to walk uh, on, there's a little stream. And he wants, it's flowing, it's flowing. And he wants to walk through the stream. But even though it's flowing, when he goes to step on it, it doesn't move. And then he looks more carefully as he's looking down at the grass. And he can see through his feet to the grass, and what he discovers is that in comparison to the weightiness of the heavenly reality, he's like a ghost. He's chintzy himself. You see, when we pursue life apart from the glory of God, it's like shopping at the dollar store. It's chintzy, but when we follow God, he is the only one who can give true substance to our life. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem, right? Okay, so we should pursue the glory of God. We should pursue the glory of God because he's the one who has a substance to him, a weightiness to him that then he can give to us. So there's only one problem with this. The problem is, is that when you go around the glory of God, it highlights your chintziness. It reveals your shame in comparison to him. When you're around the glory of God, there's this weightiness to him that now your chintziness is now exposed. And, and what, the, what the Old Testament scriptures point to is that it's, all, it's like dangerous for you to be in the presence of the weightiness of God. That's why you find throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites, they can't, they can't get too close to the Ark of the Covenant. They can't get too close to the cloud of glory because it's too real. It's too weighty. It's a little bit like... Many of you have met my friend Mark Halleck. He was here. He preached here about a year ago, did some training for our leadership. And I remember we've known each other since we were kids. And we were in college, and we were counselors for a church camp, middle school church camp. We're in college, middle school church camp. And at this church camp, they, they had a dance, right, a little middle school dance. And, and we were just, you know, chaperones kind of watching the dance. And they, they had a mosh pit. I don't know if they're still doing this. They have a mosh pit. Kids jumping, slamming into each other. And, um, and one of the kids comes up to my friend Mark, and he's like, he's like hey, will you, come, will you come dance with us? Uh, will you come join the mosh pit? Now, if you remember Mark, here's the thing about Mark. He's like six foot five, 250 pounds. And he's thinking, this is, <laughs> this is not a good idea, guys. But they're like, come on, you got to come. You got to come out of the mosh pit. And so he's like, all right, fine. I remember just watching. I can see it playing in my mind right now. Like, he reluctantly, he goes out, he's out on the mosh pit. As soon as he gets out there, kids just start flying everywhere. I mean, they're just, and he's like trying to not knock them over, but they're jumping into him and just, bam, bouncing right off. Like, he's just too weighty. I, I shared this illustration with him. I asked him if I could talk about him this way. He thought it was funny. Right? It's just too much substance, too much weight, and in the same sense, 
we cannot stand in the glory of God. It's too much for us. It exposes our chintziness. It exposes our shame. This is why any genuine encounter with God will ultimately lead to humility. Any real encounter with God, the first thing that will happen is this place of humility. I remember I've shared this illustration before. I was in a band years ago, and we went to record an album with this this guy who was well-known in Colorado as 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 an engineer and also mainly as a guitar player. And we were really excited to be able to record with him. And there was this one song where we asked him to play a solo uh, on the, the song. He's like, yeah, okay, okay. So the four guys in the band were all sitting there, and there he is, Dave. Dave Beagle's his name. And he gets out, of his, and he starts to play the solo. And the, the next 30 seconds, like we just, we, afterwards we talked about we felt like little boys in the presence of a real man. It was just like, and like the tone, just the way he would hit the string and the way his vibrato would... It was 30 seconds of us just being totally humbled before the beauty and the glory of his playing. And, and you see, that, that is just a glimpse of a, 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 small, a small example of what happens when you come before God on a much larger scale. When you truly encounter the presence of God, you are humbled. You recognize your sin. You recognize your shame. Before that God. You know, this is, this is why our modern world wants to push God out. This is why we all push God out. In our hearts, right, they talk about the, this humanist turn. Modern society is rested in humanism, which is about celebrating the triumphs of humanity. And the, the, the thing about celebrating the triumphs of humanity is that we, we want the glory for ourselves. And so we have to push God out, you see. We have to push God out because if we don't, then in comparison, we come to realize that our triumphs aren't really all that spectacular after all. And so modern society, I like to think of it this way. Modern society is a little bit like the bride who won't invite her pretty friend to be a bridesmaid in her wedding, Right? Because she's afraid that she's going to steal all the glory, right? If I invite, you know, pretty Sally, then everybody's going to see how big my nose is, right? Everybody's going to see that I've put on some weight. And so I'm just not going to invite pretty Sally, my friend, my close friend, to be a bridesmaid in my wedding because she's going to steal all my glory. That's basically what modern society is doing. That sums up our modern situation is that that we, we push God out because if he comes in, it humbles us. Spiritual growth, genuine spiritual growth, the more a person matures, the more they just become aware of their own sin before God because that means they're really encountering God. That's why the number one thing that I look for in leaders is that sense of humility. When I ask people to be involved in ministry, and and you can tell they're like, I don't know that I'm worthy of doing that, that's often a sign to me like, okay, this might actually be the right person. Now, maybe not. Maybe there's some reasons why they shouldn't. But, but when I see that, like, I don't know. I don't know that I'm, I'm worth That's to me, is a good sign. Because it's a sign that the, they get the glory of God, and in comparison to his weightiness, they're chintzy. Now, what do we do with this, right? 
how do we reconcile the fact that we need God's glory in order for there to be any substance to our lives? How do we reconcile that reality with the fact that if we find ourselves in the presence of the glory of God, it only reveals our chintziness? In fact, it's dangerous. We need the presence of God, and yet being in the presence of God is dangerous. How is that reconciled? Well, friends, that reconciliation of those two points is what the gospel is all about. What we discover in the person of Jesus is this. God's glory is most gloriously seen when he gives it up. God's glory is most gloriously seen when he gives it up. I read during the worship a passage from the book of Philippians which highlights this so well. Here we see the glory of God in its fullness. I'll read it to you again. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, something to be used for his own advantage. That's what that means. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Nothing reveals the glory of God more than when in the person of Jesus Christ, he gives that up on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's another way of saying Christ, in the person of Christ, God became shameful so that we might become glorious. He took upon himself our chintziness so that when we put our faith in Him, when we are united to Him, then as He was raised from the dead and raised to glory, that becomes our own destiny as well. Friends, when we put our faith in the cross, when we unite ourselves with Him, when we follow Him, And we follow him because he has entered into our mundaneness and our shame. And now we can live a life of glory. Here's actually what happens. The mundane things in your life, those things in your life that just seem kind of worthless and and unnecessary and pointless, all of a sudden there is a glory to them. Those things that you're like, oh, I got to get beyond this. I I don't like that my life is pointless. It's meaningless. it, It actually gives substance to all of those things. You come to realize that the mundane things that you go through your life doing all of a sudden have this glory and this weight to them. Because being united with Christ, you take the mundane things and gives them substance. That's why in Psalm 84, 
The psalmist says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. You think, I'll just, I'll just open the door. And there's more meaning and purpose and substance to that than anything I would do on my own. Any glory I might bring to myself is dollar store compared to being a, a doorkeeper in the house of God. Friends, let me ask you this. What dollar store dreams are you pursuing right now? What dollar store dreams are you pursuing right now that you're going to find out a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, a hundred years from now? It's just chintzy. Friends, surrender your lives to God that you can come to experience the glory of God. You pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning. We praise you. We praise you for your glory. We praise you that your weightiness, your substance is seen in your giving it up. Indeed, that which has the most substance is nothing other than your love, your sacrificial love. In that we find your glory. God, I pray we would be drawn back to that. God, help us to see that everything that we've been looking for, everything that we need is just right here available through faith in you. God, I pray that you would bring color to our very gray lives. Help us to see the beauty and the glory and the things around us, that beauty and glory that comes when our faith is in you. God, humble us before you. Help us to realize our own shame. Help us to see that on our own we can accomplish nothing. God, show us in which ways this week we're called to surrender ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.